Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of the Big Hearted Education Podcast. This week I had an incredible interview with Adina from Play Learn Chat. Adina is a speech pathologist, but she prefers to go by a speech therapist. It encompasses more holistically, which is how Adina likes to work. So Adina supports parents of autistic and neurodiet oh my goodness I struggled with this all day too with neurodiverse children with a neurodiversity affirming approach so Adina is obsessed with doing things differently and with innovating her non-traditional online business enables more families around Australia to access practical affordable and relatable speech therapy guidance and education so Adina also works with educators she's been in this profession since 2012 and has an absolute wealth of knowledge. It was such an honour to speak with her today. We covered quite a territory or a large conversational stretch and I learnt quite a few things and also processed some things that I do as an educator, as a parent and as a human in general. So it was such a great informative chat. I hope you really enjoy it and uh, without further ado, Here is Miss Adina from Play, Learn, Chat. Hello, hello and welcome to the Big Hearted Podcast. My name is Victoria Edmund and I am your host. Our aim here at the Big Hearted Podcast is to nurture a community of heart-centred educators to change the perception and delivery of early childhood education and care in Australia and ultimately around the world. We want you to be inspired by our guests and the topics we bring to you to think of new ways of being as an educator. We want you to feel a sense of belonging via this podcast so that you can engage any time of the day or night in any place that suits you. We want you to become an educator that delivers education from the heart, as we believe this is how we create great change within our world. So join us as we discover new ways to inspire each other here on the Big Hearted Podcast. Oh, good morning, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us, Adina, from Play, Learn, Chat. As everybody's just heard in the intro, you are a speech therapist. So I just want to just start the podcast off with A, introducing you to everybody and B, just hearing in, in your own words from your heart what it is that you actually do. Absolutely. It is awesome to be here. As you said, I'm a speech therapist. I've been doing my thing for about 10 years now, over 10 years. From the very beginning, I've always worked with autistic kids, families of autistic kids, very much with a parent coaching model from day one, which is pretty terrifying as a new graduate. I've also done a lot of work with educators like you and your beautiful audience. So Also, from very early on in my career, I was going into childcare centres and working with educators and with the kids there. And yeah, it's been a really amazing journey. I spent years doing a bit of everything. I think we often do that in our career. And the last few years, I've kind of narrowed and narrowed and realised that my absolute passion is in supporting autistic kids, their families, their community, their educators, their world. Yeah, wonderful. It's so great. You know, I know when I started in my early childhood education career, having even my own babies going back 21 years and then looking further back to when I was a child, 
you know, I can really only remember one boy from when I was in class in school that I would flag as neurodiverse, like, you know, just one boy. And that's because he had these epic showdowns, like they were just awesome. And I don't really recall seeing many other children. There is that masking, you know, that goes on with a lot of neurodiverse people. So I guess my question around this whole topic, since you've started as a speech therapist and all the body of work that you've done, do you feel like there's more prevalence now or do you think it's that we are more aware of these differences in neurodiversity? Why can't I say that word, neurodiversity? There you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. And I know there's a lot of research looking at this. And every time prevalence of autism comes out, we see that there's more and more autistic and neurodiverse people in our world. So I see and I believe that it's an awareness factor. More people are seeking and diagnosis, more people are aware to even ask the questions of their medical practitioners and their therapists. At the same time, diagnosis of girls is going up. And Mm. this is something I'm seeing in my practice. I am seeing more and more autistic and neurodiverse girls coming through who would otherwise fall through the cracks, who would have come out looking like they're doing okay during the day, they're keeping it together, And then they go home and they have epic meltdowns. Yeah. And parents are wondering what's going on and they're just managing and they're coping barely, but they think, well, you know, my daughter does okay during the day and it might not be so obvious at childcare or preschool or school. There can be a lot of masking. There can be a lot more passing for neurotypical that girls often can be doing it more than boys and passing a little bit more which is really problematic. So that's where the awareness is so essential. So when educators and teachers are more aware of what the signs might be to look for and how they can support families and talk to families to seek a diagnosis and to work together to not to seek a diagnosis, but to ask the questions, let's say, and to go on a journey and find out what is happening for these kids, especially girls, but boys too, then I think that's where we're seeing the real power, that collaborative process, rather than a judgmental process or a scary process. I mean, of course, it can be scary. But I think as we've touched on before, you know, before this recording, having the answers sometimes can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Oh, 100%. You know, I mean, as you said, we were chatting before we started recording and shared with you that I'm undiagnosed, inattentive, ADHD been like that my whole life clearly and it wasn't until COVID hit and perimenopause that the symptoms I started experiencing like I just had no more space there was no more place for me to you know be able to mask things that were going on like there was just so much on my plate that I couldn't prioritize and it just put me into overwhelm and I suppose when I look back at like what my childhood was like and I look at what childhood is like for young children now it's not surprising that so many children now present a lot earlier and a lot more what's the word I'm looking for Uh, the prevalence is a lot more because these little kids don't have that free and easy childhood everything is planned they're so busy there's so much going on there's so much sensory input coming in Mm -hmm. more so than ever before you know there's 
always a device around and that's not criticism at all it's just the way the world has gone now but when you look at what you have to process in a day that's when things started to go or not to be as manageable for me when I had so much input coming in that I had didn't have the tools to process it. Mm-hmm. So I wonder too if that's what children experience as well, that sensory overload and that continual noise, like processing all the noise, the different sensations and all that sort of stuff. So do you have sort of any like things that you'd like to talk about in regards to those kinds of things? Yeah, absolutely. And starting with that thought of what happened for you through COVID, a bit of a discovery and, you know, our worlds were all turned upside down and we got to learn a lot about ourselves pretty quickly. I know that a lot of families I worked with, some kids loved lockdowns because they were in their safe space with their safe people, with very predictable small worlds where things were quite controllable. Their parents may not have felt the same and often did not. But for a lot of autistic and neurodiverse kids, it was actually happy and an easy time. I work with a lot of families in Victoria and for school-age kids who had these on-again, off-again, in-school, out-of-school, in-school, out-of-school years It was everywhere, but especially pronounced in Victoria. That was very tricky, that this kind of switching from one mode to the other was very challenging. And for a lot of these kids, the home life, that quiet, controlled online Zoom life actually was really beneficial for them. Not for everyone. There were challenges for everyone. In terms of the sensory environment, I think that's something you know, that's a huge conversation and I love it. (laughs) Now, as you and your listeners are probably aware, kind of sensory regulation often will fall under the banner of an occupational therapist, which I am not, but my whole career I've worked very closely with OTs and really get the sensory regulation piece that they've been talking about. And it is so important because if a child or an adult is not regulated, they can't connect, they can't communicate, they can't learn effectively. So being able to understand that basic level, if we think that Maslow's hierarchy, there's Wi-Fi at the bottom. No, not really. (laughs) But, you know, that sense of being safe and secure really is linked with that sensory experience. Mm. So one of the things I talk to a lot of parents about, and I think we've touched on this already, is reflecting on our own sensory preferences and our own sensory needs as adults And thinking back, if we can, how that affected us as children and noticing everyone has sensory preferences. My experience is that neurodiverse people have, let's say, a narrower band where we're okay. So that means we kind of need our sensory environment to be a little bit more aligned with our preferences to be okay, to connect with other people and to learn new things. Yeah. And let's say neurotypical people are more able to cope and live their everyday life with their unpreferred sensory experiences happening. Yeah. How does that match your experience, your life? Totally. And like, I know with Jess, you know, she often works with headphones on because it just cuts out all the sound, you know, to the point where we often connect via video during the day because Jess lives two hours away from me and we work remotely together. Yeah. And you know, I'll have music on in the background that I don't even hear and she'll be like, you've got to turn it off. Like it's just too hardcore. I'm like, I can hardly even hear that. She's like, no, 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 
you got to can it because I just, I'm focusing on that, not yeah. on what you're asking me to focus on. And I know I've had children in care with me in the past who have, you know, sudden changes in environment and it could be in temperature. It could have been in, you know, light level of light or, you know, a variety of reasons has created some difficulty in transition for those children. And, you know, it makes total sense to me. Like now as I go along, I used to always work with music on. Now, depending on what kind of work I need to do, sometimes I just don't want any sound, just the natural environment sounds that are around me. And other times I need that extra boost, like if I'm cleaning or I'm not having to mentally focus, then I can have music on. And I I really want to bring this awareness to educators because I know there's a lot that will just put the radio on. Mm. And, you know, commercial radio, that, oh, I can't even listen to commercial radio myself. You know, and if that's on just in the background, there's some people that have to constantly process that information that's coming in because it's unavoidable for them. So that makes total sense to me. We do an entire module on calm spaces in our essential elements course and we talk about visual noise in that whole topic because not only is there auditory noise but there's visual. I'm a real visual person and if there's not order around me, it can like it just creates this quagmire in my own head I did stories a couple of months ago now about how I was feeling really overwhelmed and then the next week I was like oh I can't function my office is an absolute pigsty and I I couldn't function that is that visual noise and that clutter that really impacts me I have 42 years of tools and life experience and coping mechanism there's children that have two or three years and if you're an educator that has this space with so much stuff in it and you're struggling with children's behaviors it might be time to think about that and have a look at that do you think that really can have a positive impact on neurodiverse children Absolutely. And I think that experience you've shared for yourself, your own reflections and noticing, okay, there was a bit of chaos, but you had the tools to know what you needed, think through your steps and action those, you advocated for yourself. You went, I need this. And you did it, which is fantastic. So as you said, those little kids in your services don't have those skills generally to know how they're feeling, to really be able to understand their own emotions. So that's a really important step. And I know emotions are a big feature of conversations in childcare centres, but it can be quite tricky for a child to know I'm feeling really upset. That's step one, to understand that feeling. And the next thing is figuring out the cause of it. That's really advanced stuff. We're not expecting three-year-olds to get it, but we can help through conversation and modelling. And, you know, kids are going to need a lot of help to identify what it is about their sensory experience that's tricky for them. So for now, I would say at that age group, your educators are the advocates for your kids. Yeah. You know, you need to be like detectives figuring out those sensory profiles of the kids. If the kids have an OT and you have a really clear understanding about their sensory profile, that's awesome. But even just seeking that information yourself to notice what is a child gravitating towards, what are they enjoying, what do they love, And what are they avoiding or what is that experience around them? 
that leads them to be quite dysregulated. And I love the visual noise example that you said. And even that really small detail, very important detail of temperature, that's a beautiful example where you're very keyed into all those factors that can lead to that sensory experience. And as you said, you know, not everyone even notices the same thing. So you heard me get up before to go close the window because there's yeah. construction noise going on pretty far away. Most other people wouldn't even notice it. But if I kept hearing that, that would have been super distracting for me. Yeah. So, you know, that's just another example. Everyone's got their things that they're sensitive to. And I think educators, you kind of need to turn on your super sensitive detective ears and eyes to experience things how your kids might be yeah. and really start to have a good guess about their sensory profile. You talked about calm spaces, which is beautiful. And I talk about calm a lot. It's a word I use a lot in my work. But let's also not forget other states that we might want to be leading kids to being in. So sometimes you don't want them to be calm. You want them to be excited, energetic. You know, there might be other states that we're aiming for as well. Calm is often a good one. You know, you can't really go wrong with it, but there might be, you know, sometimes you might want to pump them up and sing some happy songs and put on some music and that might be the goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talk a lot about having a rhythm and I know for me as a person, not as a neurodiverse person, but just as a person and I know my own children, I'm pretty sure my daughter's inattentive ADHD and my son would be just neuronormal. I don't even know what the word is. Pardon? Neurotypical. Neurotypical. There you go. He would be neurotypical, if not anally retentive, <laughs> but neurotypical. But for the two of them coming up through, you know, school and or kindy in school and then later into high school and now university, mm. they both really thrived when we had a rhythm. Like when they knew what was coming, when they knew when things were going to be happening, it wasn't time specific, but they followed on from something else, you know. So it was always, you know, breakfast and then after breakfast it was brushing teeth and then after brushing mm -hmm. teeth it was getting dressed. And then after getting dressed it was, you know, reading a book or doing a quiet activity until we left for school unless you were my daughter and it was like four hours of putting your shoes on and then I lose my lolly at it because it's like, we've got to go, you know. Like, So that was always difficult to manage. But, you know, in that rhythm, it would always come to the end of term and I'd be like, oh, I just want to, you know, not rush out the door. I just want to, you know, not have to worry about breakfast first this morning and blah, blah, blah. So having those breaks in rhythm and then by the end of the school holidays, I was always so ready to get back to my rhythm because having yeah. that lack of rhythm just left me out of sorts, but it also left the children out of sorts too. So in amongst all of that were these life skills that I feel like I imparted to my children. And I know that's something that you really talk a lot about. So what is it about life skills that are really important for children that are experiencing difficulties or challenges? Oh, that's a brilliant question. And I wanted to touch first on the fact that I love that word rhythm. Routine is really important, but routine does suggest more rigidity and we don't always get that and it doesn't always work and I love that idea about creating a rhythm and its predictability because it's you know this then that then that usually so that is beautiful in terms of life skills that's such a brilliant question I mean I think we all want for our kids to be as independent as possible in navigating their world and whether that is 
their education settings, their social settings. And I know for many of the parents I work with, they really value so deeply those social connections. They want their kids to be happy and adjusted and feel connected to their world. And I'm pretty sure that that pops up in their elf quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, huge. Yeah, being one coming connection to community, it's so important. And that is beautiful that I think a lot of parents are recognising that as well. And maybe it's the parents I'm working with, (laughs) maybe it's the parents I see, but I see less and less these days of trying to get those academic achievements. We know, a lot of people know, and I know that getting those deep foundations and that community and that connectedness is what comes first. Building language skills is only really going to happen when there's a reason to communicate and a motivation to communicate. It doesn't just happen in isolation in a little language bubble. It shouldn't because then it's not functional. So I think first if we're looking at helping these kids get comfortable, adjusted, happy, calm, safe in their spaces, then we can work on helping them communicate with other people better. We can help them build those social connections if that's something that they would like to do as well. And then developing those other skills, that's like the cherry on the cake, <laughs> whether it's you know reading, whether it's literacy, whether it's pencil group, all of that stuff. I don't think I have to tell your audience that you know none of that comes first. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. I really love that you talk about, you know, those language things coming first and needing a reason to communicate Mm. and learning those skills. And I am a bit concerned after the mask wearing for the last couple of years that we're going to see a whole lot more or a whole heap more children who have difficulty reading those emotional cues that we give from our facial expressions. I know I'm a really facially expressive person. Yeah. Like really expressive. That, you know, because, and I really see it when I am communicating online, for example, without being able to add, you know, the fantastic eyebrow movements in and whatnot. And for those watching or listening via the podcast, you can't see me, but I'm super animating myself right now. But I do that all the time anyway, and I talk with my hands. So when you take those cues away, I'm very concerned that there's going to be a whole lot of things that we don't see come out for another year or so. And it's when babies are little, you know, when they're born, that's the first thing they learn is to recognise those emotional. They don't know what those emotions are. They learn pretty quickly, though, when, you know, that happens. It's a oh, feeling or, you know, they know they can associate. Mm. So I do have some concerns around that. Is that something that you're concerned about as well? Or am I just, you know, histrionic here and making things worse than what they're going to be? No, I think they're, <laughs> I really, done in the past. <laughs> they're really good questions. And as you said, it's probably a bit early to know. I myself have not checked the most up-to-date research, what we're actually seeing kind of empirically to answer or start to answer. Mm. Is it affecting kids? So, you know, being around lots of mask wearing, is it affecting kids? Maybe. I can see an argument for why it might. I can also see an argument for why it might be okay. A, kids generally are pretty resilient and good at getting information from all kinds of parts of their world. So while the number of hours in a day that they might have been around adults with no mask might be less, 
generally I would assume that most kids are still at home with their parents, you know, not mask wearing most of the time and that kind of thing. And even over a year, you know, mask wearing in most places hasn't been completely consistent. I know in Australia it's pretty abysmal at the moment. (laughs) So it's an interesting question. I think we might find no or low effect overall, but I wonder if there might be particular kids for who it's especially difficult and may have a bigger impact. These are more questions at the moment. The other thing I'll say is that we're also pretty good at compensating in other ways. So you were talking about how you like to gesture and knowing that people are going to be listening to this. So you were compensating by kind of explaining how animated you are to give them that image in their mind. I know I live my life on Zoom these days and I've kind of developed different ways of doing body language and facial expressions that just kind of fit Zoom better than fitting the real life. Um, So an example is I just used my hand gesture, but I actually put my hand way higher than I would normally do in real life so that you could see it. Yeah. So when we all come out of our COVID bubble, we're going to be like these super expressive people. (laughs) We'll look like we're dancing, interpretive dance. Why not? (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. So funny. That's so funny. Oh, boy. So social interactions and engagements, like I really find this a beautiful topic to talk about. We do a topic in our essential elements called deeply connected relationships. Mm. And that's all around those obviously deeply connected relationships and the importance of those. So I know a lot of neurodiverse children that I've worked with in the past have really struggled to be able to engage When I first started working with some new, and I haven't worked with a massive amount, I'm not saying I'm any expert or anything, but my thing was to try and get them to engage, get them to engage. And as I went along and I learned, I reflected on my practice, Mm -hmm. I took a more gentle approach in terms of just providing skills there for them and different ideas and ways of approaching topics and or scenarios and situations and just kind of planting that and leaving it there and allowing that child the space to really investigate that themselves and sometimes they would choose not to and then sometimes that would create emotional dysregulation because they would be upset because things weren't going the way they wanted to but it was something that we would just practice and set goals for that I had to remain unattached to. So do you have anything that we could utilise or any topic or, you know, things that you'd like to share around great ways that educators can assist children to engage in play with other children or tools and topics and things that we can talk about in regards to that? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. It's great. (laughs) We've got (laughs) lots of ideas. And I think what you talked about is kind of leaving a temptation for the child. Yeah, great. So what you learned over your practice was rather than kind of forcing or really pushing a child to do something, I think we've all probably experienced this that kids, maybe grown-ups too, most often will do what they want. <laughs> yep. And I've always found that by following the child's lead and if we really have an agenda for a specific reason, matching our agenda and our plan with the child's preference and choice and what they've gone towards matching that together is where we'll probably get the most success and even more so 
if we can just put our agenda aside <laughs> and if our agenda, if our own goal for the child in that centre, for example, or for a speech therapy session, it might be my goal for a child in a speech therapy session. If my goal for them is to play in the way that is right for them, to engage in the activities that they choose in, suddenly there's a big relief from my end. I'm not pushing, pushing, pushing for something. Yep. And I'm recognising and really formalising the fact that allowing a child to engage in their own way with their own preferences is worth something. It's worth putting it down on paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, And it becomes easier. It's not always going to be easy, but we don't have to make it harder by putting resistance up because I know when I don't want to do something, Generally, it's when my husband wants me to do something for him that I'm like, no way, uh-uh, not going to do that. And I will find every reason under the sun to not do it and will, you know, dig my heels in, as does he. <laughs> but we're not talking about relationships here. We're talking about children. And what it highlights for me, though, is that, yeah, I've always got to come back to how I feel about things and how things impact me. And then realise that it's okay that children have those feelings as well. And, in fact, what they're actually doing when they pull those up gives me an opportunity to reflect on how I behave and then how I want to have someone address me in those types of scenarios and then I can turn that around and utilise that with the children. That's where I became really aware that I was trying to force my agenda Mm. of you need to learn how to interact with the children because this is going to benefit you for the rest of your life. Well, yes, that's true, but now we're coming out where there's a whole heap of different ways to interact with people and especially through COVID now, a lot of it is online. It's not even face-to-face. So that creates, you know, this whole other world and opportunity for these neurodiverse children to grow up into and Mm -hmm. through So, you know, I suppose the thing, kindness is never negotiable for me. Absolutely. That's like, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you come from. I don't care where you're going. If you aren't kind in my space and you do unkind things, that behaviour is unwelcome. So, you know, that's for anybody. And that's a non-negotiable ever for me. So, but everything else we can work with and work around. So I think, you know, this kind of leads into, you know, play skills and play development, I think, because I know a lot of educators, well, what we're trying to work towards, we've had this ultra academic, you know, people, children, and we touched on it before with writing and, you know, trying to force things that children are not ready for. So now we need to have this play-based approach, which I feel like isn't so much swinging the other way. It's coming back to the centre. There's got to be this intentional process. Like we have to revere this intentional teaching ability that educators have. And it's okay to have goals for children and to work towards those goals for us as educators for that child because we've got to come from our entire life perspective and all the skills and lessons that we have and bring those into what we know is going to be helpful for those children. So is there anything you would like to share around play skills and development? Yeah, and I think it really comes back to my philosophy and I'm feeling a growing tide about being neurodiversity affirming. And what that means is seeing neurodiverse kids as 
fine and okay and not broken, not damaged, not a child who's not quite right. Let's call that the old thinking and let's throw that out. It's about appreciating that every individual and in this context, especially neurodivergent kids, has their own strengths, their own awesome brain, that it works in different ways to neurotypical kids' brains. And that's fine. It's different. I'm not saying it's always easy. Absolutely. Those differences can lead to challenges. So we're not pretending there are no challenges, but we need to meet the kids where they are and follow their lead, which sounds very overused, but what does that really mean? It means really noticing who they are, like who are they? How do they want to play? How do they want to interact with their world? And it also means offering them temptations and opportunities around what they're already doing and what they're already expressing as who they are, giving them a chance to explore these other ways around that, but without the pressure. You talked about that before as sort of backing off the pressure, but giving those opportunities always. And it's through those opportunities that kids are going to learn new things that they love and new language and new ways of interacting with people. But I do want to reframe the idea that play has to work in a certain way and there's a certain trajectory. We probably all learnt it at uni. There was like, I don't know if Piaget and a few others are kind of familiar. I think Vygotsky had some stuff to say. They're not wrong. They're kind of old dudes these days or dead dudes. (laughs) There is kind of a play development trajectory and it is important to understand different types of play and how it can lend different kinds of play can lend itself to cognitive and communication and social development that's important but I think we need to let go of the idea that every kid has to play in these expected ways and what does that even mean what does expected play look like So if it sounds familiar, you might have met an autistic child or an undiagnosed autistic child in your services before who loves lining up cars. If you're listening, raise your hand if you've ever seen a child who likes to do that. P.S. I was a kid who lined up things in beautiful colour order. Now that I look back on that, that's very interesting. And I noticed this in my almost three-year-old daughter as well, which is very interesting. It makes me very happy. And when I see kids who love lining things up too, I go, that's awesome. That is their way of experiencing their world and interacting with their materials. And they're sharing with us their way of playing. It is so right. It is so far from wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So I want parents to be able to recognize that as well and that's where I think educators talking to parents can help parents reframe how a child is expressing themselves and how they choose to play is right for them and yes we can always show them and join in and learn their ways and maybe help experience something else a little bit similar but without forcing that because it's never going to work play that's forced I don't think is ever actually playful no no it's definitely not And this is what we really advocate for educators is that they step back. Like don't intrinsically place yourself in everything. Mm -hmm. The biggest growth for me as an educator came when I stepped back and I actually learned to breathe and not step in when things started to get heated you know, that was a very authoritarian sort of approach to take. What I actually learned was that children have the ability and so often their thinking and their problem solving is so far beyond 
my level of creativity that what I was actually doing when I thought I was helping was actually hindering and taking away the children's ability to negotiate. And, you know, I think that's really important for us to be able to get. I saw a video, I went to a talk one time, a Steiner-based education professional development. They showed this video of this boy, little baby, who was just getting ready to walk and his sibling came across in front of him and snatched whatever it was out of his hand, like a car or whatever. Now, so many of us would step in and be like, oh, you can't snatch that from little Jimmy, you know. Look, he's crying now, but Jimmy didn't cry. Jimmy only cried because I stepped in and gave him the cue that, oh, oh, you know, the world's going to end, shit's hit the fan because of the energy that I brought into that space. Mm -hmm. So they played this video and what happened was little Jimmy had the car taken from him and his brother walked across the room. Jimmy watched, he digested that, he watched, and then he actually engaged his internal will muscle, mm -hmm. for a better word, and he took his first steps to get over to the other side of the room to investigate what his brother did with the car. Now, if you're objectively looking at that scenario, Jimmy wasn't upset that the car got taken. In actual fact, that prompted those first steps from him. That, in anyone's language, is a positive interaction. If Jimmy was upset by that, initially he would have cried himself. So when we do this jumping in and we try to assist the children with these social norms and expectations, we have to be very aware that sometimes we're putting things in the place when really if we step back and we just observe, obviously I'm never going to let someone hit somebody. That's something I'm going to step in for. But these other scenarios just leaves things open for children's creative thinking mm. and their way of expressing themselves without us putting those things in place. And I think that goes back to when I was trying to help children integrate with into the group too. You know, there's certain groups I will not go near because I just have no interest. You know, gossipy people don't care don't want to have a bar of what you're doing. You know, people that bitch about other people, I don't want to integrate into that group. It has no interest for me. Same with people that are talking about cars and, like, some sports. <sighs> I could not care less. I don't want to go and stand there around a table drinking beer and talking shit like that. Like, if someone tried to make me do that, like, mm -hmm. I could do it, but I'm not enjoying it. So and for think, whose benefit is it? Why, yeah. why should you do that? Because someone else had a goal for you? Yeah. And I know, you know, inviting kids to join in with a group time can be really important. But how, like, I think it's also about checking in what does joining in look like? I just did air quotes. <laughs> what does joining in look like? And for one child on one day, it might look very different to what an educator might expect or what, you know, most of the kids are doing. Yeah. Joining in for some kids, you could tell me, but, you know, sometimes it might be great if that child is in the room while the story is being read. And yeah. sometimes it might be great. I know, you know, sometimes kids will sit on an educator's lap if that's the right thing that they need at that time. Other times they might be sitting right there up the front watching and engaging. But what joining in looks like, I think we can be a bit flexible in yes. and yeah. taking the child's lead 
in that moment. It's going to change, you know. They're going to have, they're going to grow and change and surprise you. And they're also going to have days that they're going to do something different, (laughs) join in in a different way. So I think that's a beautiful reflection on grown-up groups and interactions. We get a lot of choice as adults to be able to pick those spaces and those groups that we join. And as kids, we don't. That's really tricky. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like, I mean, we just think we're so progressive with what we do, but then when we come back to really looking at it from a different perspective, sometimes we are just forceful, you know, and there's no intention of being forceful. It's an unconscious action. And that's what I really want educators to really, really look at is those unconscious behaviours that you do. You're not even aware you're doing it, actually. And I was looking on your website earlier and one of your videos, you talk about one of the things that you do with parents is that you get them to record their interactions. And I just thought that was such a great idea to record what you do because, you know, and you're not looking at it in judgment on look at that role, oh, you know, although we'll all do that. But, you know, you're looking at it with what's actually happening when I'm doing that. Like what are the other children experiencing in observing this interaction? Because I'm just looking from here to here, but there's a whole other thing happening around the room and how are the other children taking on that feedback and that information and you know like what's actually going on you know if I you know had stepped back and allowed more space for the children to work these things out what different learning could have occurred in that scenario whereas when I stick my big nose in it because I think I know better you know I just I really want to have that conversation with educators and I really want educators to be able to have that experience and look at themselves because it's great learning for yourself, which is what I think children do. They're your biggest teachers, Mm. especially the ones that challenge you the most. (laughs) They're the ones that have the biggest gift for you if you're open to receiving it. So you talk about goals and you've got a great resource that people can download. We'll put that in the show notes. But do you want to talk a bit about that for us? Absolutely. And just to touch on the video idea, it's a tool that is so easily accessible if you have consent, obviously, from kids' parents, if you're able to film them for your own education as educators and take a video of you interacting with one child or with a group of kids. It is such a scary and powerful tool and scary is great. I think we've all experienced that moment of fear or feeling nervous or feeling uncertain of our practice. I am passionate about updating my practice and my learning all the time. So I have learned to get excited when I get that, like we'll call it the learning fear, like, oh, I'm about to change, something challenging is happening. That excites me to no end. And I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are the same way. So I would really encourage everyone to try, even do it with your own kids at home, just Sneak your phone somewhere. Hopefully your child doesn't notice because they will absolutely get distracted (laughs) and film a few minutes, even 10 or 15 minutes, because at the beginning you'll be a bit distracted thinking about, oh, I'm on camera. It's just for you. You don't need to share it with anyone. So don't worry about, you know, how you look or anything like that. When you watch it back in a quiet moment, you'll be looking for what you did or said or didn't do or didn't say. And how did that affect how the child responded? Yeah. 
So those are really the questions you can have in your mind and you can do that anytime. That We've all got those phones. We've yep. all got those opportunities. So that can be a really wonderful and nerve-wracking learning opportunity. Is that something that educators do in their learning, in their kind of uni or studies? I, I've not heard of anyone filming themselves and then going back and looking at it, but, you know, it's such a great way to do critical reflection. Like, but it's instant feedback and you know you're not looking at it to be critical of yourself you're Mm. looking at it to see what was the critical part that happened in that what can I learn more about that's what critical reflection is and Mm. I just think that's such a great tool that is as you say available to everybody and if you're working within a group so we have a private group with our essential elements team as long as there was permission shared, then we could really look at that together and it would just be like mind-bendingly, I don't know, it would just provide exponential growth, I think, for educators and I think that's a really underutilised tool, one that I shall now be spruiking (laughs) because I think it's just so good. And And don't forget the positives. Yeah. You all are so beautifully well-trained and experienced. Even new educators, you know, have so much training and life experience too. You are doing a lot of awesome things. So allow yourself to find the positives of what you're doing and even just watch it through one time to note down everything that you did that was awesome to support that child to be happy, calm, independent, play, interact, whatever was going on there. Great tool. Go for it. Now, you were asking before about the goal setting guide and it's something that I'll share. Yeah, so really encourage your audience to download it, whether it's for their own purposes or if they want to use that as a tool to work through goal setting with families of kids who have additional needs, that could be a useful tool as well. The big idea behind it is I don't see it as a child's only responsibility for them to make changes, for them to improve, for them to gain skills. That's important. That's one part of how we're helping our kids grow and develop. But we do also need to consider the whole world around them. So I've got a diagram with basically a kid in the middle. It's in the goal setting guide. We've got family. We've got your home. We've got educators and teachers. We've got the community. So shops, school and people in the community as well. And I encourage you to be setting goals, thinking about everything and everyone around your child or the child in your service about how can goals be set in all those different spaces and for all those different people. We don't just want a child to be able to verbalise their emotions better. We want family to be able to support that. We want educators to be able to support that. We want the environment of the childcare centre to be facilitating that calm and emotional regulation or even, you know, having visuals around emotions in that space. So, Basically, it's about not setting goals just for changing the child. We want a small goal. We want to change the world. Yeah. Around your child. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I really, I really love that. And that's part of what we have to meet as educators when we're meeting the EYLF and the regulations. But it's like, I kind of want to push the EYLF aside a little bit and just, Mm -hmm. you know, the regulations state that we have to provide a space that's safe and welcoming for each child in our care. We also have to provide a program for that particular child that's going to assist them to feel connected. 
So, you know, that type of like holistic approach to goal setting, it's not just about that individual child and the things that child needs to do. It's the educator setting a goal that will benefit everybody as well because it will include community and it will include the families more fully. So I think it's definitely worthwhile educators jumping on and having a look and downloading that. We will put the link for that into the show notes. But just do you want to rattle it off now or am I putting you on the spot? (laughs) Oh, in terms of where to find it? Yeah. I'll tell you what it's called. It is called the Goal Setting Guide and there is a link in the freebies page on my website. So you'll find me at playlearnchat.com. I would also very much encourage your listeners to join me on Instagram. Play.learn.chat is where I live on Instagram. And I'm always sharing, I really aim to share really practical hints and tips and ideas and just make strategies embedded into everyday life. You know, just speech therapy practice doesn't have to happen in certain designated times and places. And you're going to get the most out of supporting kids. You all know this by supporting them in their natural daily environment. And you have the blessing of being there in that environment with them. You know, your childcare centers are that environment for them, which is wonderful. So, you know, how can we maximize the input that we're getting and the connection that we're getting with kids in those settings. Yeah, fantastic. So just so listeners know, Adina actually has the Play Learn Chat website, but she provides programs for families as well who you know can utilize their NDIS funding or may just want to join in. She's got a couple of programs that she runs. We were chatting about one, creating one for educators. So maybe by the time this comes out or not long after, there'll be something there for us to be able to jump in and utilize because I know quite often educators will flag things and parents you know for whatever reason it could be without judgment don't want to follow up on that so you know an educator with these skills and tools in her hat or belt can really create positive change for children there is ways that we can access funding through the ISS or the inclusion support agency in your state to be able to do professional development yourself. So that's something that I'm happy to work with Adina with to create something around that so that it can be accessible for educators and, you know, to have the most positive impact and benefit for the children in care that we have because these skills aren't just for one person. You know, these skills will be utilised across the neurotypical children as well as the neurodiverse children, but you'll probably learn a whole lot about yourself too. So put all the information into the show notes. Adina also has a podcast which will also pop into the show notes as well so you can follow along there and go and have a listen to her podcast. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Adina. I've gotten so much out of this conversation. I really enjoyed it and I hope and I know we are going to keep connecting because we've already got about a thousand ideas brewing from our chat today. (laughs) Yeah, it's me. That's what I do. I come up with all the ideas. Just don't ask me to finish them. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tick them off. We'll get there. I, I love it. You know, I really look forward to keeping this connection going and it's just been wonderful chatting today. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. If you really loved what you heard, drop us a review and that's how other people can find our podcast as well. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dina, and we'll catch you very, very soon. Thanks for coming. Bye. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. 
When we work on our own, we can sometimes be in a silo. So having new perspectives and different ways of looking at things is vitally important for the growth of our individual selves and our professional selves as well. We love feedback, so if you felt compelled to share what you thought of today's podcast, we would love to read your thoughts. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. That helps our podcast to get out to the wider community. And the more that hear what we have to share, we think the better it is. Thanks so much, friend. We'll see you next time. Till then, big love.